This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Our last presentation today is a weighty one and really could deserve an entire seminar just on itself. It is focusing on the sanctuary and the Ten Commandments because everything that led up to this point as we've been going through this series on, the, and on Egypt, the Exodus, and Moses' quest for God's destiny, we've been asking the question, first of all, who am I? The question that Moses had to ask himself and every one of us has to ask ourselves, who am I? Am I going to be following the world? In Moses' case, am I going to become the king of Egypt and have the power, the prestige of the greatest empire of the history of the planet on my shoulders? Or am I going to accept God's call at the burning bush and be his servant leading his people into the promised land? We have that same, same issue today, don't we? We started out with that. And today I want to uh, conclude with God with us. Uh, the presentation will focus on the law of God, the sanctuary, and God with us, the pattern for future witness, God's plan of salvation. In Exodus 29, verse 46, God says this, And they shall know that I am the Lord. Remember, it was the I am that told Moses to go to Egypt. The I am who lived and breathed through that burning bush that called Moses back into Egypt, and that I am says, I am the Lord, their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may what? Dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Notice how that's repeated at the end. What has God wanted to do since the very beginning of history? He has wanted to dwell with his created people. He has wanted to dwell among us. That is why after creation, God walked with Adam and Eve and talked with them and spent that first Sabbath communing, Sabbath communing with them. It's why he created the Sabbath. It's why we are here today to commune and to learn about him. But as Moses was, was coming back to that same mountain, now with a huge following of former slaves that had just been redeemed by God, he comes to the mountain, Mount Sinai, the Bible says. He comes to Mount Sinai, and there at Mount Sinai, God would reveal himself not only to Moses, but also to the people that he has just delivered through his salvific power from Egypt. And the Bible says that the Lord came down. The Lord came down. We, the technical term for this in theological studies is theophany. Theo meaning God, theophany, God coming down to visit his people. And if you are a person who is a follower of God, God coming down to meet his people is always a good thing because we want to commune with God. If you are not one of God's people, God coming down is not always such a good thing because he is an all-consuming fire. He is the God of heaven. He is awesome and powerful and holy in the midst of our unholiness. The Lord came down. Now, there's a very important aspect here to the Lord coming down. When the Lord comes down, 
He can come down as often as he wants, but if we do not go up to meet him, there's a part that we play in that as well, isn't there? The Bible says in the end of those verses in Exodus 19, 19 through 25, that Moses went up. Now, before this, there was a very, a very uh, a process involved in all of this that uh, Moses, uh, there's a given order among those that are there. The people are to stand within the camp and not cross the boundaries. That Moses is called up to the mountain to speak with God and Aaron, but the priests and the people are to stay within the boundaries. There were boundaries that were set up. So there was order for the camp, order and how this all was to take place. And there on Mount Sinai, God with his own finger writes on tablets of stone. Now it's hard to find good art for this. Um, and, uh, you know, Moses is not writing. He's just putting his hand up like this because it's God's glory that is behind him. Remember, he could not see God's glory. He had to turn his back to God's glory. The artist is, remember, he's hiding in a cave. There's, there's rocks behind him here. We don't know exactly how it might have happened as the Bible describes it. But, but God's finger, the Bible says, wrote on these table, tables of stone, his commandments. And these commandments are quite incredible when we think about it. They are founded within the firm context of the redeeming grace that the Israelites had just experienced as they had been slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt and were now coming out of that experience under the miraculous intervention of God. Those ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, and finally they come to this place. And I want to just emphasize this a little bit because sometimes when we think about this aspect of the commandments, when we think about the aspects of the commandments, we often think about do's and don'ts. And I'm speaking here particularly to the young people here in this room and maybe those that are listening later. We think of do's and don'ts, but the commandments are not only about do's and don'ts. They're set in the framework of a salvation pattern that has already taken place. They're set in the framework of the grace that God has already provided to each one of us. I want you to reflect on this a little bit. In the passage in, and I didn't give the reference here, in the passage it says, I am the Lord, this is the first part of uh, Genesis chapter 20, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 20, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then it continues and it says, you, let's use the King James, thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? That thou shalt not, and we have a series of those thou shalt nots, right? Um, and then we have in the center of the commandments two positive commands, but those thou shalt nots are often seen in kind of a negative light. But I want to put it to you in a different context. It could also be translated equally well in Hebrew, and let's modernize it a little bit because we don't go around speaking like this very often, do we? I haven't talked to anybody today and said, uh, how did thou like uh, the presentation today? You know, I don't speak, we don't speak that way. So let's, let's speak it the way we could understand it in the way we speak. It could also be translated, and I put here a because, since I brought you out of the land of Egypt, you will have no other gods before me. 
Isn't that a little bit of a different perspective? In other words, I have redeemed you with my grace. I have delivered you under the auspices of these miracles that also has brought judgment on Egypt. And because of this, because I am the God of heaven and all these other gods are false, you will have no other gods before me. And he continues, and that train can continue. You will not bear false witness later on because of what I've done for you. Does that make sense? And to me, when I, when I, this is the beauty about studying Hebrew. You, 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 I mean, it's there, even in the King James Version, it's there. We just maybe haven't quite thought of it quite that way before. That's, that it is the result of something. So now let's look at these Ten Commandments. And I want to go through each of them and comment a little bit on each of them. And again, this could sp- we could do a whole seminar on this. We could have 10 days. We could spend a day on each commandment, couldn't we? So I always tell my students sometimes that we have to summarize very quickly. And as I mentioned in an earlier uh, setting here this weekend, I've recently written a commentary on the book of Exodus. So I'm going to gather some thoughts out of that. But again, it's much longer than what we can cover here. No other gods... Let's highlight again what that means for Israel in particular, but again, the Ten Commandments were not only written for Israel, were they? They were written for all of us. No other gods. Where had Israel just come from? Egypt. And we had just spent a great deal of time in this seminar describing the gods of ancient Egypt and the religion of ancient Egypt, the ideology and the the mindset of ancient Egypt. It was not only polytheistic, it was pantheistic. Everything was worshipped as God. Nature was worshipped as God. And every aspect of nature had a God associated with it. Some say there were as many as 22,000 gods in ancient Egypt. So, and if you think, you know, sometimes when we read this, we're like, how does this apply to us today? I mean, no other gods. I mean, we don't have that problem, do we? Are we, are we tempted to worship the sun today? In the Western world, anyway? Where are we tempted? I mean, I sometimes wonder when I go to the beach. I grew up in a beach culture in Michigan. Um, but uh, do, we, do we worship the moon or, or a frog or the Nile River? Or, or you know, we, we, we may not identify that much with this. But I want to remind us that there are billions of people in the world today that still are worshiping other gods. I have a colleague at uh, Southern who is an evangelist, Dr. Carlos Martin, and he has a museum in his office. I always walk by his office a little bit with trepidation. Not that I'm fearful of other gods because they're made of wood and stone, right? But he has a collection of gods that, he has, that people have brought forward as they've come forward and given their hearts to Jesus Christ. They have brought their gods to the altar. And so some of them he has broken and some of them he says, oh, these are kind of nice. I think I'll put them up in my office as a teaching lesson to some of my students later on. So he has this whole collection of gods there in the School of Religion at Southern. I some, sometimes wonder about it. But anyway, it's, it's, it's a good thing. Um, they're, they're, not, they're not powerful at all. That's the point. These people have given their hearts to Christ, and these things are just, are just sitting there in his office. No other gods. What kind of gods do we have today? Anything that occupies our time and takes our focus off of the God of heaven can become a god for us. Anything. Degrees can become a god for us. Education can become a god for us. Position can become a god for us. When we think about the next commandment, no other, sorry, going forward, no other graven images, we may think, oh, graven images, what's that all about? I, I, I don't have any images in my house. Really? Sometimes I wonder what an archaeologist would think if he dug up a house from the 21st century. 
And he came into that house, the ruins of that house, and he sees on a wall a 60-inch LCD high-definition TV with all the furniture arranged around it. He goes into the bedroom. There's the bed. There's a 42-inch. Goes into another bedroom. There's a computer with a 30-inch Mac monitor. What, what would they be thinking? And all the furniture, the chairs, aligned with these things. What do we spend our time with? What do we do? How do we do? What about the, the little handheld devices that we have? I think I turned mine off now. Okay? No graven images. We are surrounded today by images. Images are everywhere. What kind of images are we watching, are we looking at? We're surrounded by them everywhere. No graven images. Well, of course, back then it had a different context perhaps, but today it is still the same. Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he entered Athens and saw a city full, full of idols. Let me just share this thought with you. We are not to make God's image. We are to be God's image. Are you with me? The problem in our society today and around the world today is that we make images and we worship those images, but we are not to make images. We are to be God's image. We were created in the image of God. That doesn't mean we worship ourselves. That means we reflect God to others because as we allow him to live through us and in us, he can have an impact. All right. No name in vain. Well, I won't say too much about this. But um, have you noticed? It, by the way, let's, let's just, sometimes we limit this, don't we? To saying uh, OMG or something, <laughs> right? On a voice, on a, on a text message or something like that. Sometimes we limit it to something of that nature. And that's all around us and it's pervasive in our culture. But what else does it mean to profane the name of God? Could it be that committing false worship profanes his name? Could it be that those who enter into a covenant relationship with the Lord are also called by his name, and if they're known as followers of God but do not live as followers of God, then their witness is in vain, and therefore they are carrying on their message is, is, not, is not taking the Lord's name the way it should be taken. And their worship is in vain, according to Matthew 15. So as Christians, we represent God not only in how we speak, but in how we act. And we are to be living in the image of God. Finally, we come to the Sabbath. And I want to show you here, there's no no in front of the Sabbath, is there? There's no no there. There's no no in front of the fifth commandment. This is a straightforward, imperative command. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Now, it's interesting to me, I'm in the job as an archaeologist to remember. I spent my life looking at things from the past and trying to reconstruct them and trying to remember or look at how things might have been back then. Remembering is extremely important. The Bible has a huge emphasis on remembering. In fact, the Exodus experience that we've been talking about this week is referred to again and again and again. Remember, we said in one of our lectures, it is repeated 125 times, remember the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They were to remember that Passover experience every time they celebrated Passover because it pointed forward to the Paschal Lamb that was to be slain in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, when we think about the Sabbath, there are four aspects that I want to focus on. First, God instructs us what to do. I'm not going to present a whole list of what to do and what not to do on the Sabbath, okay? But he does tell us what to do. We are to remember the Sabbath day, and there's a double meaning here when he says we are to remember the Sabbath day. First of all, we are to be pointed back to creation week where we are to remember where God has done, what God has done in creating the Sabbath in that cycle of seven days at the beginning. We are to remember that. We are to remember that he is our creator and what he has done in his creative activity. But it also anticipates that we are to remember or to remind ourselves not to forget to keep the Sabbath. Do you ever think about that? It's not only pointing back, but it's pointing to the present and to what we're doing on the Sabbath that is important. Remember the Sabbath day to what? To keep it holy. That's what we're doing now. And that brings us to our second point. It tells us, uh, that will come down a little bit further. We, we are also told when we are to remember. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. So the Bible is specific on when, and I'm speaking to the choir here, but for those who might be listening later on, the seventh day Sabbath was instituted at creation, and it continues on throughout history, throughout the entire framework of the Bible, and it does not change. It continues to be, sorry, the seventh day Sabbath because of that creation week. Thirdly, the commandment describes how we are to keep the Sabbath. We are to do no what? No work. So there's something that we need to do in order to keep the Sabbath. Really? Yeah, we're to do nothing. Well, not quite. We're to do no work on the Sabbath. We are to spend that day with God. And finally, the why of the Sabbath. Why do we keep the Sabbath? Because in six days God made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. The why of the Sabbath is because God chose that day to spend with us. It's an incredible thing to think that God chose a day out of everything in the universe, all of his things that he needed to do to spend with us. Incredible. So the Sabbath is extremely important. The Sabbath is a creation order institution. It was instituted in Genesis chapter 1. And if we go to the next commandment, honor your father and your mother, we find that there's another creation order institution that is established here with God's own finger at Mount Sinai, and that is the institution of marriage. 
It's right smack dab in the center of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments, of course, outline what? Our relationship to God. We know this as Seventh-day Adventists. The second, sixth, second part of the Decalogue, the, seven, the six commandments that follow are our relationship to humanity and to each other. And at the core of this bridge between the God relationship and the humanity relationship is the importance of the family and the honor and the glory that parents are to receive as part of that family. That's incredible when you think about it. Why? Because God is specifically pointing out that just as he, sorry, just as he is the foundation of who we are and our relationship to him, so the family is the basis for who we are in our relationship to each other. Society, culture, everything begins with the family. Everything begins with the family. Just read through Adventist homes sometime. Read through some of the counsels that we have been given. And look at biblical history and see what happens when the family disintegrates. I don't think it's a coincidence that today, in the world that we live, the family is under such heavy attack. And it's not only the family, but it's the whole concept of marriage altogether, isn't it? Now, I want to ask you a question. Is it coincidence that these two commandments are the very center of the Ten Commandments? And is it any, should there be any question in our minds as Seventh-day Adventists, they're living at the end of time, that Satan would want to undermine these very, very creation order institutions that God has established from the very beginning? The Sabbath on the seventh day at the end of creation and on the sixth day before the Sabbath ever happened, he created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. And he tells them to be fruitful and he tells them to multiply. We have a lot of confusion about that in our world today. And sometimes I wonder whether if we're not willing to speak out in our culture and what's happening in our culture today on this issue of family, whether we're going to be ready to stand up when the Sabbath test comes. Think about it. Could this be a test for us for the real test? I mean, are they both real tests? Absolutely. Are they both part of what God has instituted at creation? Absolutely. And both of these together are going to be part of the defragmentation of our society at the end of time. Matthew 22, verses 37. I'm sorry, I'm going ahead here. Yeah, let's go, let's go on. So the others that happen, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no bearing false witness, no coveting. We can go into a great deal of detail on each one of these. I'm not going to do that today. Of course, no coveting pretty much covers all of these six because if you think about it, um, a lot of our relationships begin with this, don't they? Um, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus says, This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law. And you're like, wait a minute. We just talked about ten commandments. What's going on here? This is a summary of what we just said. The first the first and the great commandment is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the summary of the first four commandments. 
that culminates with the Sabbath. Maybe we can get this turned down a little bit, if you don't mind. So, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's summary of the second six. On these two commandments, or the summary of these two, hang all the law and the prophets. And when he says law, he's referring here to the Torah. He's not referring to the Ten Commandments. He's referring to the first five books of Moses and the prophets. This is a capitula or a, 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 a description of Scripture that he's talking about here. That's what Scripture is hanging on. Okay? All right. We've talked about the Sabbath already. We've talked about humanity. Look at this image. I think it, it's an image from Nathan Green. And you can see here Jesus in the center of a man and a woman. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be in that position at the beginning there with Adam and Eve or to be Adam and Eve at the beginning? There's some neat imagery here. When Jesus is at the center and higher and we focus on him, our marriages will be better marriages, won't they? Jesus should be the focal point of everything that we do. And Jesus, at the beginning, with Adam and Eve, walking with them in the garden, going from place to place, explaining to them the background of his character, that was an incredible experience, I'm sure, for them. Uh, to dwell among them. To dwell among them. So now we come back to Mount Sinai. How was God going to dwell among this motley crew of slaves and mixed multitudes that had come out of Egypt, hundreds of thousands of them, and they're camped there at the base of Mount Sinai. I have never had this problem before, so I'll lower it down a little bit. Camped there at Mount Sinai. How is he going to dwell among them? He instructs them to build a sanctuary. He says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Isn't that interesting? God wants to dwell among his people. That is his whole goal, is to dwell among his people. Thank you. You want it up. Okay. Is there a problem with the battery then? Oh, maybe that will work better. All right, thanks. So the sanctuary, what is the sanctuary then all about? It is to bring God's presence to his people, but it is more than that. It is to show the plan of salvation to God's people throughout history. The whole thing. And you know, when I was writing this commentary, I was amazed again and again at the amount of detail and time and chapters dedicated to the building, to the instructions on building, and to the building of the sanctuary. You have read through this before too, haven't you? It's incredible. Do you think for God this was important? Do you think for God worship was important? And how we worship and the details of how we worship are important for the ancient Israelites? I mean meticulous details all the way through. By the way, do you know that the first individuals to be mentioned to be inspired and filled by the Holy Spirit in the Bible was not Moses or Abraham. It, were the, it was the artisans that built the sanctuary. Okay? Bazalel and Eloiab. Okay? These were the two individuals that were given the responsibility to construct the tabernacle. And to these individuals were given great, great, wonderful 
uh, experiences. And it was, uh, it was so that God could dwell with his people. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of the plan of salvation as outlined in the sanctuary because there are other seminars you can listen to and other uh, uh, people you can hear about that. You can later on read my commentary when it comes out. But, but this is something that is, is a huge, huge blessing for God's people, and it will be for many years to come. But the sanctuary, the sanctuary message is central to the message that we have as a church today. Because this message, this sanctuary that we see here was built after the pattern of that which is where? In heaven. And, and so it is a huge aspect of what we believe today. We know that it contained a holy place with the various uh, articles of furniture all having deep meaning and representation. The most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant with the two covering cherubs or some would say seraphim that when Isaiah is describing these seraphim, he's actually describing the covering cherubim. Some people say these were two separate uh, beings. Others say these are two different descriptions of the same being. At any rate, what we have here is something incredible. And who is resting on the mercy seat? What is the mercy seat there in the most holy? It's the Shekinah glory. It is where the throne of God is located. So we have this, this, this sanctuary, and, and through that sanctuary, we can see the plan of salvation laid out for the people. Sometimes people ask me, do you think the Israelites understood that? Absolutely they understood it. Did they always understand it? No, the Bible makes clear that there were times where they didn't understand it very well. You read the book of Malachi, and you read the condemnation of the priests in Malachi, and you understand, no, they didn't quite get it there at that period of history. They were just going through the rituals and just going through the stuff just because they'd done it all the time and their heart was not in it. Is it possible for us to do that today? Do we understand the sanctuary today? We are to study that doctrine more than anything else in the time in which we live and what Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary today. Now, I want to just contrast with you for a moment the sanctuary that was built as a moving sanctuary and later on Solomon's temple that was built in Jerusalem with the pagan temples of Egypt and Canaan. Here we have a model of a temple in Egypt. Uh, the temples in Egypt were ornate. They started with a court, but that court was not open like the sanctuary that we have uh, in the Bible. That court was filled with columns. We call them hypostyle halls. If you go to Karnak Temple in Egypt or you go to Luxor Temple you, or, or, or Medinet Habu, the temple of Ramses III, you will see these equidistant huge, huge columns made of huge amounts of stone and carved with elaborate hieroglyphic carvings and images of different gods. You will see that as you enter the court. There's nothing to be done really in this court other than reading these different columns. And you go through various places and you move through and you see um, towards the end the focal point is also sometimes where a deity is, but it's, it's very different. Now, some people have tried to compare these ancient temples, like this is Medinet Habu in Egypt. This is the temple of Ramses uh, III. Uh, um, here's another uh, view of it from a different angle. You can see the storehouses and the walls that were built around this temple. You can still, of course, visit it today. Here is the plan of it with its magazines. This is French, of course, but but with its uh, storage rooms, and we talked about the storage rooms in another area, uh, you can see that this is not the simplicity 
that the sanctuary or the temple of Solomon had. It's a very different concept. But what about these temples? I'm taking some reconstructions here from a very gifted artist uh, who has tried to show what these temples might have looked like in antiquity. Thank the Lord for computer graphics and all kinds of neat things. Look at this. The, you know, when you visit Egypt today, you don't see much of the paint on these, on these temples, right? But they were beautifully and elaborately painted to reflect scenes. You see images. Look at the gods. These are the gods. You see images of the gods interacting with the king. You see images of, of different deities. There are images everywhere. Does it make sense a little bit as, as, as God is calling these people out of Egypt not to have any graven images, not to have any other gods before me? Uh, look at these reconstructions. Milmore is the artist here. He's a fantastic uh, work of art. And, of course, the king was paramount in the center point. And, by the way, just for your observation, these were the queens. Okay? Um, we, we don't live that way today and think that way today. But remember, as we talked before, for those of you who weren't with me, um, this, these, these kings were gods. And they were always shown as greater than life because they were... They were the gods that, that were between the gods of the pantheon and, and humanity and served Egypt. They were wearing the double crown. But you can see all the different deities that are lined up here, the smiting scenes that we talked, the, the king going out in his chariot. Um, this is, I believe, uh, the entrance into one of the temples. Here you can see the great obelisks that were erected um, outside of these temples. And all of this, all of this, was in the minds of the Israelites who didn't build them, but who may have built store cities and other things around these temples and would have been exposed to them on a regular basis and would have seen these kinds of things as time went on. So just flipping through this quickly. So how different then the sanctuary that God put into place? How differently is this sanctuary? The sanctuary remains central as the basis for covenant worship throughout Israel's history and throughout our history today. The purpose of the sanctuary was to provide restored communion with God, and this came as a result of redemption and deliverance from Egypt. Now the sanctuary provides the means by which God would dwell with the sin problem and bring the people into a proper relationship with him until finally Jesus would come and restore and, and be the final Paschal Lamb that would take away the sins of the world. The sanctuary was ex exceedingly important for that period of time. Now, how does the heavenly sanctuary then relate to all of this? How does the heavenly sanctuary relate to all of this? Jesus today is our high priest. He is there mediating in our behalf. Because of Jesus, we can lift up our prayers to heaven, and he, as our prayers are mingled with his prayers, come before the throne, and we can come boldly before the throne and ask God for direction. Who was one of the heavenly cherubs before that was cast out of heaven? Satan was. And we go back again to the imagery we saw in Egypt of the two serpents with wings surrounding the name of Pharaoh. So here we see this all coming around again 
in the heavenly sanctuary as the high priest is standing in that midst. And here in the uh, mosaic sanctuary, in the tabernacle, we see how the priest would come in before the altar uh, of incense and offer, uh, sprinkle the blood there against the veil and so forth. Now, worship in this sense is extremely important. We talked about the amount of detail that is given to sanctuary worship in the book of Exodus and, and the construction of the sanctuary. And then you read through the book of Leviticus and you read through the Levitical laws and you look at the ceremonial law. God spent a huge amount of time instructing the Israelites on worship. It's not, and sometimes, I, mean, I want to be careful here, but I want to say this in a, in a gentle way. Sometimes I have the feeling that we think that simply because we're worshiping on Sabbath, we're okay. I want to be careful here. But it's not just about worshiping on a day. It's about who we worship. Who we worship. There are so many different definitions of Jesus today that you need to really be careful about who you worship. Which Jesus are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the Jesus of the New Testament and of the Old Testament? Because, by the way, it was Jesus who was in that pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day. It was Jesus who was the agent of creation. So if you throw creation out of your paradigm of Christianity and you say, well, you know, theistic evolution, yeah, progressive creation, we can attach creation onto something that's evolutionary, yeah, that's fine. You, you, you take away from who Jesus is. So which Jesus are you worshiping? There's a lot of different definitions about Jesus floating out there. There's a whole new definition of Jesus that's coming to the forefront today. The cosmic Christ that will be the Christ for all the religions. So you can be a Hindu and be a Christian. A Hindu Christian. Interesting. Which Jesus are we worshiping? So it's about who we are worshiping. That's why the Lord defines who he is. I am the I am. I am only one. It is about when we worship. Absolutely. We know that the Sabbath will be the test at the end of time. But we also know that the remnant people will be keeping the commandments of God and they will have the faith of Jesus. Those two things come together. So we have the commandments of God, all the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus. And it is how we worship that is important as well. The instructions to the Israelites in the sanctuary were very, very... Now, I know what you're thinking right now, but Dr. Hazel, we really don't have a lot of instructions about how to worship today. But we have the Bible... We have the spirit of prophecy, and we need to be very careful that we follow them carefully. I remember some years ago in being involved in a church plant when I was pastoring in Michigan, and we decided as a church board, very thankful for that church board and those faithful members of a larger church that decided to go out and start a new church. There were only about 35 of us that were doing that those church members decided that we were going to come together every Wednesday and we were going to study the Bible and the spirit of prophecy in order to figure out how we wanted to construct our worship service. There were other worship styles that were being pushed on us at that time. 
But we decided we were going to stick with that, and the Lord blessed tremendously. Let me tell you something. It is not only about who we worship, it is not only about when we worship, it's about how we worship. And I'm afraid that sometimes today we are caught up so much in emotion that we no longer are using our minds and the God-given gifts that he's given us to figure out what worship is all about. It's not only about emotionalism. And there's a great deal that is happening out there today. So, the sanctuary. Now, I want to end my presentation today with some other insights with you. And I want to simply say, before we start that next segment of the presentation, I know what I, what's happening. I'm stepping on some electricity maybe here. I will not walk that direction anymore. I'll stay over here. Won't fall off a stage, and I won't get electrocuted. <laughs> All right, so, so I will, I will, let's look at Jesus here. He's pointing, he's pointing to his Father. He's pointing to the incense that is going up in our behalf. He is pointing to, the, to that which we need to be focused upon. And Jesus also had a specific plan. God had a specific plan to place his people in a place where they could be a light to the nations. Look at the geography of the ancient Near East with me. Do you see where Canaan is located? In the middle. Smack dab in the middle of the biggest empires that would come for the next hundreds of years. And it was there that God sent his people as they entered into the promised land. It was there where the temple would be built and where it would be standing for hundreds of years, proclaiming the power and the plan of salvation that God had for the nations. The sanctuary was to be placed there. Now, I know some of you may think, well, what about China and what about other nations? The Bible focuses on this period and this place because this is where the cradle of civilization is located. That's where it all began, and from there it spread out. And from here you have connections. You know, the Mesopotamian nations, they extended in the Persian period all the way to India. We have uh, probably, uh, we have traditions that some of the early apostles went to India, at least maybe Thomas did. We have traditions that they went down to Egypt and to Africa, and of course they spread in the New Testament period even into Europe and different places. So the sanctuary being in that place in the crossroads, by the way, nobody was traveling through this region over here. This is Saudi Arabia. This is desert. This is nothing. The caravan routes between the great empires of Egypt and Mesopotamia came all through here. That's why Jerusalem was destroyed so many times. That's why there were so many battles that took place there. That's why there were so many conflicts there. That's why the city is still being fought over today because of all the traditions and all the things that happened around that Temple Mount area. But this is the focal point, and it's here that Israel was to be a light to the nations. And Jesus came to that place. I didn't touch it this time. Maybe it's that. All right. Now, I want to talk here a little bit with you in conclusion about the lifestyles of the Egyptians. I had a question uh, yesterday from someone that came and asked me a few questions about what about the diseases of the ancient Egyptians? Have you ever asked that question before? God makes a promise in Exodus chapter 15. Let me read it to you. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them and said, 
If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord God, in this case, not who brought you out of the Egypt, but who, what? Heals you. Now that's a very profound statement. And many people have wondered what, what these diseases of the ancient Egyptians were. And I'm not going to uh, profess to have all the answers today to this, but I want to give you some perspective because in modern medical research today on ancient Egypt, we have new material that has come up in recent years. And I thought that would be interesting to share with you in conclusion here because we also, as a Seventh-day Adventist church, have something very unique, and it's called the health message, isn't it? And, and you know, it's something that is a blessing, is it not? It not only helps us to live longer, it helps us to have a better quality of life. It helps us to think more clearly so that we can present the gospel message in a more fervent and longer way to the people around us. And I know that there are many environmental issues today that still cause people to get sick and to have disease, but what a blessing it is to have our health message and to be able to present that to the world. I was so excited going door to door this last... Uh, when was it? Yesterday, wasn't it? It was kind of cold out there, wasn't it? I left my down jacket in my hotel room. Bad idea. I had just a windbreaker on. I had a sweater underneath. It was a, a shell, you know, and I, I was out there with my, with my daughters and my wife and some of their friends, and uh, wow. But we knocked on a lot of doors, and I remember, you know, sometimes, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a call porter, you know, I, I used to do call portering, and and, and you, you, you check out homes before you get there, right? You check out these homes and you check out the, the drive. I saw a guy getting in his car. When you see a guy getting in his car, that's an opportunity. You sprint to get to that car before he starts the engine, right? So I get to the car. He's, has, he's fiddling around looking for something on the passenger side. And I'm running across the street to get him before he, he takes off uh, in his Ford Taurus. And I get there just in time, and he's just about to reach over to the key to the engine. I say, sir, very nice to meet you. Happy New Year. How's it going? Good. Where'd you come from? You know? I said, well, I was just across the street. My daughter is still over there. My name is Michael, you know, and then I, you know, we have that little script to follow, right? Sometimes you don't follow the script. Happy New Year. How you doing? Great. Hey, listen, we're here with a group of five to 7,000 young people in Louisville, by the way, I think I pronounced that right, right? It's not Louisville, it's not Louisville. The locals call it Louisville, so you got to kind of go with the flow. So I said, Louisville? He says, oh, that's awesome. I said, listen. And I started sensing a distinct smell coming out of the car. You know, a smoker's car has a distinct smell, doesn't it? I said, I went straight to the heart of the matter. I said, listen, we've got a bunch of health uh, programs here. You know, you guys did it. You know what I'm talking about. And he immediately says, I need to stop smoking. I says, well, it's New Year's, you know, this is the time, you know, you know what you did. And he says, yeah, he says, oh, let me sign up for that right now. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. The Lord has given us these things to share and we are invited to share them. So I am the Lord, your God, who heals you. Let's look at, let's look at the diseases of the Egyptians for a moment because there's some brand new research that has come out. Hatshepsut's mummy. Did you know that Hatshepsut's mummy has only recently been discovered? For those of you who haven't been in the seminar, Hatshepsut, we have hypothesized, is the princess, perhaps, because the Bible does not mention her name, 
but perhaps as the princess who rescued Moses from the Nile and became his adoptive mother. That's what many commentators believe and what many Egyptologists believe. And so here we have Hatshepsut's mummy. I know it's not a very pleasant picture to look at for many of you, but it's very exciting from a forensic and archaeological standpoint. How do we know it's her mummy? Well, it's a long history, but to make it short, it came from a certain cache of tombs, and it, 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 uh, we thought that it, it could be. You see how the, the arms are crossed like this? That is usually a royal mummy when they're crossed like this because they're usually holding the crook and the flail uh, in that position. And uh, she is definitely a female individual. Hatshepsut was the first female pharaoh of Egypt, the first of possibly ten. And, and, and they did sophisticated DNA analysis comparing her with the mummy of, uh, of, of some of the other uh, mummies of that dynasty, the I and Amenhotep III and so forth. And, and notice, well, let me just go forward. Here she is going into a, physicians tell me, is this a CT scan or is this a MRI? Anyway, MRI, somebody's saying, CT. Oh, but I've got a big conflict here. I'll have to get it over with. Anyway, she's going in and they did all this imaging and guess what they discovered? Hatshepsut probably died of bone cancer at around the age of 50 or so. They discovered that Hatshepsut was obese. They discovered that she probably suffered from diabetes and that she also had heart disease. And that they discovered, you know, in her, in her arteries and, you know, the hardening of the artery, they, they discovered plaque and anyway, all that, all that kind of stuff. I won't get into all the details here, but it's quite incredible. It's quite incredible how they have now concluded this. And thank you. Ah, it's the tie. All right, we'll try that. Thank you, sir. He's my, he's my audio guy and he's been taking good care of us. Wow, that's a lot better. Oh, he took it off? Oh, now you can't hear me. Okay, I'll do like that. That's good. Is that better? Do I have to go like this, Silva? All right, all right, we'll try, we'll try it this way. Get a crook in my neck before I leave here. All right, so um, here's that Chepsut going in. So diseases of Egypt. Studies of the reconstructed skin folds of some of the royal mummies suggest that some were all right, we're not supposed to use that word. Uh, obese, let's say obese. Uh, we're, we're quoting here, so let's go back. Some were fat, including Queen Inhapi, Hatshepsut, and Ramses III. This is from the Handbook of Obesity, Epidemiology, Etiology, and Physiopathology, which was just published in 2014. Okay, so, oh, by the way, do you see this image here? That's not Hatshepsut. That is the queen of Punt, which is what is probably modern, uh, modern Ethiopia today. Hatshepsut takes an expedition down to Punt and brings back all kinds of wonderful uh, plants and animals from, from Africa. She brings them back. There's a big a scene in her temple of her going down here. And she, uh, she shows the queen of Punt visiting. So this is not only endemic to Egyptians, but other individuals at that time in the higher-ranking society were uh, having, having issues, uh, we can see, with obesity. So this is Hatshepsut again, diabetes and heart disease. And again, we believe now, based on these latest forensic studies, that she also died 
of bone cancer? Do those sound like diseases that we still have around today and that are growing by leaps and bounds in our society? I went to visit my dermatologist recently, and he said that when he first started practicing some years ago, he said, um, he said I saw two or three cases of melanoma a month. He says, today in my practice, I see 20 to 30 cases a month. I think he said a month. I hope I have that right. It's going all over the place. Oh, man, I hope I have that right. That was just a month ago or a couple months ago when I went to see him. And uh, anyway, I said, I said, why is that? Why is that? And he said, I thought he was going to say, you know, the sun. But he says, no. He says, I think the quality of our food is, is deteriorating in this country. And then he told me the top three cancer-fighting foods to eat. This is an Adventist dermatologist, by the way. <laughs> and I said, what is that? Well, he made me guess in his office. And I was very happy that I already knew because I'd been into his home uh, a couple months earlier and he had asked me the same question he had forgotten because he probably asked, tells this all to all of his patients. So I, I knew them right off the bat. <laughs> and he was like, that's impressive. I says, well, John, you told me uh, a few months ago in your house. <laughs> So uh, if you want to know what they are, number one is garlic. This is from him anyway. Number one is garlic. Number two, what do you think? No, no, no. Yeah, those are, what, those are all the guesses I made. Number two, number two, beets, beetroot. And number three, he said, is spinach. And I'm sure broccoli and all those other things, kale you mentioned, are good too. Anyway, let's move on. Heart diseases. 52 mummies were recently studied in the Egyptian Museum by an international team, an international medical team. These publications have just been published in, in, in major peer-reviewed medical journals in just the last few years. This one was published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiolo Cardiology Imaging, I believe that stands for. 2011, this was published. Um, and... There are other publications coming out of the Horace study um, that are in other journals from 2009 and 2010 and so forth. So what were the conclusions of these studies? Uh, we'll read them in a moment. Um, heart disease in ancient Egyptian mummies. Uh, there was quite a bit of, of various uh, time periods that they looked at. Here you can see they went all the way back to 2100 BCE or BC, and they are studying different individuals from different periods. Um, this is from the journal uh, that you can download from online. Here they're showing uh, from the scans that they did uh, some of the evidence of uh, the arteries uh, and how they have, have uh, uh, plaque in them, or yes, calcifications is the technical term, I guess, along the course of the superficial femoral arteries in the mummy of a man who lived during the 18th dynasty. Guess what? That's the period of Moses and Hatshepsut and uh, what we're talking about here. And here you can see, I think this is uh, along the aorta, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, this is from the skull going down. You can see also uh, some of the calcification taking place. This is their conclusion. And I, excuse me if I don't pronounce all of these medical terms correctly. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm an archaeologist. Ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic papyri texts mention symptoms consistent with angina, acute myocardial infarction, I think that is a heart attack, and congestive heart failure. 
and 29 is the reference for that. For example, in ancient Egyptian papyrus for physicians comments, if thou exam... Oh, they talked in thou's back then too. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> if thou examinest a man for illness in his cardia and he has pains in his arms and in his breasts and on one side of his cardia, it is death threatening him. So they knew that. They based that on observation, right? Those are symptoms of a heart attack. Those of you who are in the medical field. Our findings, dot, 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 I skipped a bunch of stuff. Our findings of frequent arterial calcification suggest that atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease was present and commonplace in ancient Egypt, raising intriguing questions regarding the nature and extent of human predisposition to the development of atherosclerosis. So astonishing discoveries in Egypt unlock mysteries centuries old. Let me tell you something, folks. God gave us these guidelines. They're not guidelines. They're, they're commands. You know, when the Bible says, you will not, the not that is used there, the no, the low, low in Hebrew, low that is used there, has durative effect. It is a proscription that is something that is condemned or something that is told for us not to do that has lasting, lasting effect. There's two different negatives in Hebrew. And that one means that when low is used, it is something that is binding and it is there. So these are not suggestions. These are his commandments written with his own fingers. But they suggest to us uh, something that is important. Now the health laws that we have are also important. We have them in Genesis chapter uh, 1. We have them uh, rearticulated in other places in Scripture as well. Those health laws are important. And our studies, our, our studies coming out of Loma Linda Medical School, you know, Loma Linda University, our studies and other studies that have been conducted by many others are corroborating that fact again and again and again. So why is it that more and more of us in our communities are leaving that lifestyle? This is intriguing to me. You know, when my kids come back from school and they're concerned that they're among the minority who are vegetarians in their class, why is that? We need to think about those things. And we need to wonder whether what God has expressed in the past is really true today. Isn't it true today? Absolutely it is. Let's live as God has called us to live. Not because it's going to save us, it, it might, from a heart attack, um, but, because, but because it is the best way to live so that we can live fully in his service. Isn't that what we've been called to do? So as we look back at ancient Egypt, we find that among the upper classes, this, this kind of, of thing was, was common as it is today. And what is interesting to me is that as we look prophetically, what happened to Egypt's culture? What happened to this culture that lasted? If we look back at the ancient Egyptians and we look back at all of their, all of their um, achievements and we look at the, the vast amount of history that Egypt had, it doesn't compare to the other empires. It doesn't compare to the length of Babylon or the length of, of uh, Medo-Persia or Greece or Rome. Egypt lasted hundreds of more years than any of those cultures did. It was there. It was the founding principles, as we saw earlier. It was the founding of all of those different religious systems. It all traces back to Egypt. Yes, they came up with some new things here and there, 
But as we know, there's nothing new under the sun. Today, those same things are reformulated and are retaught again. Memphis, the capital of ancient Egypt. This is a picture of some of the ruins there. And many years ago, Amelia B. Edwards wrote a book, A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, kind of a travelogue by this uh, lady who traveled through Egypt. This was long before modern transportation. And this is what she wrote. And this is all that remains of Memphis, oldest of cities, a few rubbish heaps, a dozen or so broken statues, and a name. Where are the stately ruins which even in the Middle Ages extended over the space of half a day's journey in each direction? Where are they today? One can hardly believe that a great city flourished on this spot or understand how it should have been effaced so completely. Ezekiel says, By the swords of the mighty warriors, all of them, the most terrible of the nations, I will cause your multitude to fall. They shall plunder the pomp of Egypt, and all its multitude shall be destroyed. I make the land of Egypt desolate. Has this come to pass? Today, when I go to Egypt, I visit ruins. Some of those ruins are being excavated by my colleagues. When I go to Israel, when I go to different countries in the Middle East, we see ruins everywhere because the nations that were established under principles sometimes or deviating from principles that God had called people to, those nations disappear. And today, we travel to these places, we visit them. They are confirmations of what the Bible has given us. They are confirmations of what the biblical history tells us. But as we go back to these places, we see that in the end, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, as Isaiah 40 puts it, verse 8. So as we conclude this, and we think about Moses and the destiny that God called him to, I want to ask you, what destiny is God calling you to? We are living at the end of time, and we are almost entering into the promised land. What is it that I need to do? What is it that you need to do to make sure that we can live life in its fullest, anticipating what God is doing in our lives now and what he will do in the future? May we have faith in the grace of God that can bring us out of the slavery of sin as well and allow us through his power to enter into the promised land. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, these six days of journeys through, or six presentations through the life of Moses and the Israelites have given us some insights. We have only scratched the surface here. Your word can be studied for generations and can be studied again and again and again, and always new insights can be gleaned because it is the word of God, inspired divinely, by a power that is beyond this world. Lord, sometimes we live in this myopic world and we get involved in our own lives so much that we forget that in this word, as Moses said at the end of his life in the book of Deuteronomy, it is our life. It is your life. The word is your life. Teach it to your children, generation to generation. May we do that, Lord. Pray. May we study your word and live the word And may Jesus Christ, the living word, give us the power to do that day by day so that when he comes again in the clouds of heaven and he calls us home, 
he may say, well done, my good and faithful servant, well done. You may now enter into the joy of my presence in the place that I have prepared for you. We thank you in Jesus' name, and let us all say together, Amen. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.